Inflation Reduction Act, the Democratic-led Senate is delivering historic climate change legislation. We're delivering lower prices on prescription drugs. We're delivering lower energy costs, including your electric bill going down. And we're delivering on deficit reduction, as well as tax fairness. This is a very, very, very big deal. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Change Before Change podcast, a podcast produced by ASARA, a digital forward market access agency that designs innovative solutions that enable transformative market access. The Change Before Change podcast will look to highlight and address new technologies and innovations that will impact our healthcare ecosystem. We will be assessing health economic patterns, discussing market access trends, and providing global perspective on healthcare issues and news. I'm your host, Fadi Manuel, and I will be interviewing thought leaders and experts in the pharmaceutical and healthcare industry to uncover and understand the ever-evolving global health landscape. On today's episode, we will be discussing the Inflation Reduction Act with our head of U.S. Strategic Partnerships, Dr. Chad Patel, and our visiting scientist, Dr. Phoenix Riley. We will discuss the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries and provide potential strategies to respond to this new reform. Enjoy. As we've heard earlier, this is a very, very big deal. Chad, could you provide us some insight on the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on the healthcare industry? Yeah, thanks, Riley, for having me. I would definitely say it's almost, it, it's kind of like deja vu all over again or going down memory lane because when you look at the implications of this new law, it's almost analogous to the Medicare Modernization Act back in 2003. Bobby, I, I know, um, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, that was a while back. And, and when we saw that, right, that was a game changer from CMS's perspective, because that's when they established Medicare Part D uh, for retail drug um, benefits for seniors eligible for the Medicare program uh, that started in 2006. So you fast forward to 2022 and with um, Inflation Reduction Act or better known as IRA, the healthcare provisions contain significant changes, right? To prescription drug pricing, uh, primarily, you know, with the ability now with CMS to be able to directly negotiate for Medicare Part B, physician administered ND, right? The retail that the act that we were talking about um, so it has massive effects on the pharmaceutical industry and its stakeholders. And essentially, you know, what this means, Fadi, is that the passage of the IRA adds complexity to an already fragmented uh, healthcare system in the United States. And it's really going to focus on formalized um, value uh, environment, if you will. So, for example, right, when you think about a new drug price as part of the negotiation process, as far as the IRA, right? It considers a complex formula of price, competitive status, market exclusivity, and scientific data. So manufacturers, right, they're going to have to, you know, submit information for their specific drug ranging from manufacturing and distribution cost, financial support from governments, and evidence about alternative treatments uh, and data that they must provide to HHS CMS before they enter into negotiations. So it's it's very fascinating. And there's, of course, other elements uh, to unpack, which which also speak to drug reform, which is around uh, prescription drug inflation rebates, uh, $2,000 annual cap on out-of-pocket uh, prescription drug costs starting in 2025, and then the Affordable Care Act, 
subsidies, which have been extended through 2025. And the ultimate goal, right, is to lower cost uh, for patients. But certainly we've got to talk further about the implications uh, of the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, certainly based on your response, it seems like things have gotten more complicated. I want to focus a bit on Medicare, and I'll pose this question to Phoenix. Could you provide us the criteria that Medicare will be using to negotiate prices on 10 Part D drugs in 2026? Yes. Hi, Fadi. Thank you for having me. I'll kind of dive into the drug qualifications and drug eligibility first. So really, Medicare drug price negotiation is focused on high spending brand name drugs and biologics without biosimilar equivalents or generics. And they're primarily going to fall under Part D, Part B Medicare drugs, like Chad was speaking on earlier. The brands must be FDA approved for at least nine years, but the biologics 13 years. So specifically in 2026, um, negotiation for Part D drugs, it'll be 10 products and it'll increase to 20 products per year by 2029. And for Part B drugs, 2028. Some of the research out there and predictions have actually shown that around 100 drugs could be negotiated by 2031. So as this process continues, roughly all the products once outside of that exclusivity period with annual Medicare sales above 200 million, they're all going to be at least eligible for negotiation. So once this eligibility comes about, the Department of Health and Human Services, as Chad was talking earlier, the HHS, they're basically going to rank the negotiation eligible drugs according to the total expenditure for them under Medicare Parts B and D. And it's going to be during the most recent period of the 12 months prior to the selected drug publication date. And once they're negotiated, the drugs negotiated by CMS will then be required to be on the Part D formularies. Pricing is something that is a little complex. However, it's basically the ceiling price where the negotiation is the lesser of the net price of the product after the rebates. So 75% for up to 12 years post-approval, 65% for 12 to 16 years, or 40% if it's been less than 16 years of that non-federal average manufacturer price. Now, you mentioned biologics and brand name drugs. Are there any specific disease states that are going to be impacted the most due to these uh, reforms? Yeah, so really Medicare represents a large script volume in elderly patients. So with the highest morbidity, mortality, and unmet need. So diseases that are most affected will be that of the elderly population. In terms of specific drugs that may be targeted, with the timeline of negotiation for the first year with 2026, and the fact that decision-making is highly based on future spending data, that is now hard to predict. Um, but there are some analysis out there using the CMS data. Um, the, it's based on 2020 data, and I feel as though it gives insight on the pieces of the puzzle and gives a sense of which products might feature in future negotiations. And it's based on year launched and high spending. Really, the products that are seen at the top of the list 
were medications and therapeutic areas such as oncology, osteoporosis, and rheumatology. So there's a good insight on some other disease states and specific disease states that may be affected. Yeah, those disease states that you mentioned definitely have a large patient population that may be affected. I want to shift gears now, and I'll pose this question to, to you, Chad. Could you please tell us more about the impact that the IRA will have on the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, very interesting question, Fadi. And, you know, from from our research, right, manufacturers are going to have to consider supply-based considerations, right? Looking at their R&D cost, manufacturing, distribution, operations, because those are components now, right, that are an information that's got to be considered and submitted as part of these negotiations, in addition to traditional value considerations, right, that pharmaceutical clients always focus on. And I call it the, the three P's, if you will, as far as the key stakeholders in healthcare, which include, right, value to patients, value to providers, and value to payers. So they're really going to have to, you know, balancing kind of both ends of the spectrum within development and also thinking about um, to their external stakeholders. Another area for, for companies really to consider is to take a holistic view of their drug development pipeline, right? So, for example, you know, as Phoenix was outlining, you know, for small molecules under the Part D, companies will have to reexamine R&D priorities to account for favorable treatment for biologics because, you know, as mentioned, they receive longer regulatory exclusivity periods than smaller molecules. And with IRA, they're also afforded more time on the market, four more years. So that difference um, that was mentioned before negotiation eligibility. Uh, another area is really around price provisions from the IRA may discourage further R&D uh, discovery and, and pipeline pro programs that have already been approved to treat one rare disease. We know that you know areas of high end needs are these rare diseases where there are um, uh, limited treatment options, high end needs for patients. However, with the IRA legislation, it makes it clear that an orphan drug with one designation is excluded. So if if you're have a product for one designation, you're excluded from negotiation. But we don't have information or there wasn't language on drugs with multiple orphan indications. So companies got to consider that um, as they think about um, pipeline and research development. And then lastly, I think, you know, the, the IRA may discourage federal funding um, for drug discovery because receiving federal funding is a factor that gets considered by CMS when selecting the maximum fair price or MFP. So, you know, a drug that's developed using government funding, such as the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, risk being priced lower. And this is mind-blowing because literature has shown that the NIH has um, funding has been tied to FDA approval of over 200 drugs from a span of, of six years from 2010 to 2016. So these are implications that is going to require additional discussions across not just pharmaceutical manufacturers, but across multiple consortiums and stakeholders, as mentioned. And then certainly, uh, it's going to change research priorities from an R&D perspective. Now, you mentioned research initiatives multiple times, Chad. Phoenix, in your research, what have you seen in regards to research initiatives? How will they be impacted with these potential restrictions? Great question, Fadi. Um, there are a lot of potential consequences for these provisions. And I can definitely piggyback on what Chad was discussing 
pharma companies are going to have to refocus development on assets less likely to be a top Medicare drug or explore life cycle options to shift sales to their newer products. And that kind of brings in some research I've done on patent litigation strategies. Um, there are going to be a lot of changes to these. And a good example would be branded drug companies and how they may seek settlements to allow a generic and a biosimilar to enter the market shortly after the reference drug will be eligible for negotiation. And that could definitely benefit litigation costs. And that kind of brings me into pharma companies having to adjust operational levers to really create that value on cost management. And this is mainly like focusing on reducing cycle times, decreasing costs, just by applying accelerated drug development lessons from even COVID-19 to post-pandemic business. So using what we've been through over the past years to really change the drug development process and focus on where we can, you know, really decrease costs. They're also going to have to deliver a return of investment from automation and maybe even digital innovations. And this is just due to the cost of developing an asset and with launch drug prices declining, losses due to determinations, this will be a very significant value out of the late stage pipeline. So just really focusing on drug development and where the costs can be contained. Now, there were reforms that were instated in Europe in the 1980s and 1990s that involved price freezes, fixed pricing, profit controls, reference pricing. Could you give us more insight in regards to that, Phoenix? Yeah, Fadi, Europe has actually adopted many drug price control policies. There's actually three primary examples that come to my mind after researching. And each country developed similar strategies and changes that did affect pharma innovation. So the first one was Germany's Health Reform Act. This was actually in 1989, where they instituted reference pricing systems for medicines and phased in stages over several years. And it established reimbursement levels for drugs based on the reimbursement. France actually instituted a variety of taxes, price cuts, spending caps, and uh, other policies that undercut incentives to conduct R&D as well. And lastly, with the United Kingdom, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence guideline, it provided a gatekeeper for newest innovative medicines. And they specifically used controversial set prices, reimbursement, and also coverage policies. I want to focus a bit more on these reforms, Phoenix. What was Pharma's response to these changes? It's interesting you bring that up because with European governments having already adopted similar pricing policies in the past, the response and adaptation strategies could really provide insight into how manufacturers can learn and adapt to the changes we're currently going through with the IRA. 
really with my research, it's important to note that the avenues that pharma companies have taken into consideration are both in market and across markets. So a few of the areas of focus across markets were incorporating effective international reference pricing management. So a good example is pharmaceutical companies were encouraged to develop the data sets and capabilities required to manage the potential negative impacts of international reference pricing. And companies were also encouraged to improve their pricing models to understand the price trajectory across Europe through just the use of low-cost commercial models, so reducing the sales forces or employing distribution-only strategies. And lastly, just increasing pharmaceutical company-delivered patient services. This extended pace and scale of their therapeutically aligned services. And this these examples include Pill Plus service models and RW. So within the actual market, the focus here was improving regulatory affairs, data efficiency, cost transparency across portfolios, and reviewing the role of generics and biosimilars in terms of extending partnerships. Thank you so much for that response, Phoenix. Now, I know we've had about three months to digest and understand these reforms. Chad, in your perspective, what has been pharma's response to these changes? Has there been an outcry? Has there been any problems with these reforms? Yeah, that's a very timely question, you know, and it's we're definitely seeing quite a few uh, pharmaceutical companies, right, disclosing um, information specifically uh, stating that the IRA's drug pricing controls and the Medicare redesign is likely to have material adverse event effects on sales, um, business, and operations. That came directly from Amgen um, in a recent press release they had. And I think everyone's still trying to figure out the degree uh, of the impact of IRA and, and trying to further you know, unpack all the implications that we've been discussing. But I think it's safe to say that IRA is playing into every biopharma company's internal pipeline decision making, uh, given all the factors that, that have got to be considered. And as mentioned earlier, as it relates to some of the legislation regarding orphan drug status, we've heard from companies like Eli Lilly, Alnylam, who've already started you know, uh, blaming early stage candidate cuts uh, based on the IRA's onerous pricing measures and implications on orphan drug designations. So we're definitely um, seeing pharmaceutical industry paying attention and really incorporating this into their decision-making across their life cycle planning and pipeline development. Thank you so much for that, Chad. Now, we heard earlier about the price reforms in Europe and how pharmaceutical companies responded to that. What are some potential strategies that pharmaceutical companies can take to respond to these new reforms? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say you know, what really jumps out to me, Fadi, is really for the pharmaceutical industry to have that urgency now to develop strategies that span across the product's life cycle. We know that value and evidence requirements are traditionally needed at launch when a new product's value, you know, is uncertain and, and is needed. But given, right, the government or CMS's ability to negotiate price via the IRA, there's a need for formalized value demonstrations and real-world evidence generation across the product's life cycle. And within that, right, companies can 
start taking strategies now to really thinking about uh, scenario planning in terms of esti estimating revenue impact through forecasting revenue scenarios through all of their market and pipeline programs, really evolve clinical and pricing strategies by emphasizing health economic data to best position their portfolios for Medicare drug pricing negotiations, expand pricing and market access functions, and reconsider their pricing strategies. And there's certainly, as we've been talking about, revising the portfolio strategy by therapeutic area, modality, launch timing, reprioritization, pipeline, and life cycle management. So, so to summarize, Fadi, it really creates an opportunity, right, to implement strategic and integrated evidence generation to demonstrate value across multiple pillars, right? Um, unmet need, advances against uh, com com existing treatments, and it really IRA enables, right, um, thinking about the value um, in broader strokes, uh, in looking at health equity, insurance values, spillover benefits. So. It leads to also um, a lot of potential and opportunities. And that's something here at Asara that we're thinking about every day. Yeah, I definitely agree. And this has been very, very informative and very timely, as you mentioned earlier. I want to give you guys the floor one last time before we hop off the call in case we missed anything that you wanted to share. Yeah, thank you, Fadi, so much for having me on the podcast. I appreciate you giving me the platform to really discuss the research I've done on the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, thanks so much, Fadi. I just want to commend you, right, in, in, in this podcast and really bringing up timely issues that are impacting the healthcare industry, like the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, the silver lining here is that, you know, no one has all the answers, but together, right, we can work together. And certainly, we hope you enjoyed kind of our, our thinking, our research around it, but it'll continue. And we want to keep this discussion iterative. And as we learn more, certainly be able to share kind of our thinking uh, through this next wave. Because, you know, at the end of the day, right, the goal is to lower costs and improve outcomes. And that's why we're in healthcare. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We hope you found this information timely and informative. And as always, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review if you enjoy the show. This has been your host, Fadi Manuel, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.